Amen. Good morning, church. Man, it's awesome to see all these graduates up here today. Uh, we're going to jump right into the Word together today. I want to invite you into what is week two of a sermon series we're calling Sons and Daughters. I'm going to make a statement that I made last week. I'll probably make it again next Sunday, but this is the, the, the catalyzing thought for this series. God has a place, a purpose, and promises in His Word for His sons and daughters. We need both men and women, young and old, people of God, activated in the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work and the will of God in this generation. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. As I look at these students up here, you know, I know commencement's coming and they're going to hear all kinds of encouraging thoughts like uh, launch into the grand adventure or reach for the stars or turn over a new leaf. And I just want to say publicly today that they don't have potential because of all of those things. They have potential because they're gifted and called by God, because he created them and fashioned them in his image with a purpose and a plan for their life. Amen. Amen. Paul said it like this. Paul said, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. That's power. Jesus said it like this in the Great Commission. He said, all power and authority has been given to me, therefore, go. In other words, because I have all the power and all the authority, you can go in my name and you can be successful in the things I've called you to do. And so I, I wanna just speak today on this idea of, of our sons and daughters having all the fullness of the Spirit, all the giftings of the Spirit, and all of the undiminished authority of Jesus today that is available to every believer. Now hold your seats, because I'm gonna take a hard right turn. Because specifically, I wanna speak today about women in ministry. Some of you are like, didn't see that coming. Maybe even more specifically, can a woman be a pastor? Now, as I throw that out into the atmosphere and let you process it for a minute, let me just acknowledge a few things. This is a wide audience, all right? Lots of people, I've even seen lots of people this morning, I don't know you, you don't know me, you're just kind of checking out Wrightsville. We're glad you're here. Let me just acknowledge the fact that there are lots of differing opinions. One of them is, who cares? Like, that one's in the room. Some of you are like, is that, is that a question? Is that a thing? Can women be, is that a thing? I, I didn't know, that was, is that a problem? Um, others of you, 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 you understand the issue. You maybe could find the verse in scripture that might be problematic, but you have a strong conviction on it, and, uh, and you've moved beyond that question a long time ago. And yet still, there's others in this room. Man, it is, it is a core issue. It's like really, uh, you know where you stand on, on women in ministry, and, uh, and maybe if, if it was not me, but a lady up here preaching this morning, you, you wouldn't even stay to hear it out. It's possible that, that all of those beliefs are in the room this morning. Whatever your opinion is, I, I want you to go a little deeper, and I want you to understand the heart of why I would even give a Sunday morning to speak on this issue. Because beneath all that, I believe this for these students, and I believe it for every senior adult. I, I believe it regardless of your age, your nationality, uh, or, or your gender. I believe that the sky is the limit on your potential in God's kingdom. I believe what Jesus said in Mark's gospel is true in chapter 9 and verse 23. All things are possible to them that believe. And, and so I, I read an article just this week, interestingly enough, and this is total irony, it was about uh, Rick Warren, the pastor of Saddleback Church out in California and the Southern Baptist Convention. And I don't know if these kind of news stories come across your feed, um, 
they come to mind. Like the algorithm knows I'm a preacher. Okay, that's all I can say. Like some of you, you keep wondering why you get all of the, the, the Trump ads. Well, like they know who you are too. Okay, so that's your business. I'm just saying they send me, they send me stories about church stuff. So maybe you, you don't know this, but I thought it was interesting and timely that uh, in February of this year, the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee, made a ruling that Saddleback Church is no longer in friendly cooperation with the SBC because it has ordained women in ministry as pastors and allows women to preach in worship. Uh, the, the church has now made a statement. This was the article. They plan to vigorously object to their expulsion from the Southern Baptist Convention at the SBC annual meeting next month in New Orleans. The, the writer goes on to say, this carries enormous significance because Saddleback is the largest church in the SBC. They've got like 40,000 people. It's crazy. Uh, they record more baptisms than any church in the SBC, and they... Uh, and they've started more churches than any congregation in the SBC. They've also given more than $9 million to Southern Baptist causes, in addition to starting an evangelism work. So the writer says, expelling Saddleback would immediately worsen every metric the SBC records as signs of health, metrics that are already in decline. But I read that, and, and here's my thought, but they did it anyway. Like, that didn't deter them from doing it. And the reason they did it, and I don't know how it'll play out, I guess we'll see next month, but the reason they did it is over this issue of women in ministry. All that to say, I have no uh, misconceptions that in 30 minutes, I'm just gonna make clarify the issue. Like if people are scholars and theologians and university presidents are debating this on the floor of another denomination. So a little grace here, okay? You can disagree with me on this today, but it would be miraculous for me to just resolve the tension that exists in the church in about 30 minutes time. That's probably not gonna happen today. But I do hope, if, you, if I'm your pastor, I, I do hope that, that you'll, that you'll allow me to lean into some spiritual authority in your life a little bit. Paul said this to the church. He said, you don't have many fathers. In other words, like, you don't have to understand everything your dad says or why he does what he does, but you ought to take his opinion a little more than a 30-second TikTok video you watched. Like, it should matter more. So you don't have to agree with me at all today on some of the things that I'm gonna say with you. And, and you know what? I'm comfortably fine with that because we all declared our unity in the lordship of Jesus Christ this morning, amen? And we're, we're all still the, the blood-bought redeemed, all right? It has nothing to do with some of these issues, but let me say these are important issues today. It goes all the way back to Genesis, this idea of, of our roles in culture. I mean, if this was a long-form conversation, and I wish it was, this would be so much better over coffee. If this was a long conversation, I, I would go back and show you in the word of God how he has used both men and women time and time again to build his kingdom. I'd show you how the patriarchy that we have in our culture and even the patriarchy you see in, in scripture and the male dominance was never God's plan. It was never God's plan. In the beginning of creation, God made Eve and brought her to Adam to be a suitable helper. And that word helper, through, through the lens of patriarchy, we read words like assistant or uh, servant even in the worst case scenarios. But 
But that same word is the word that Jesus used when he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to be your helper. And I can promise you the Holy Spirit's not inferior to anyone in the room today. That word that is used as helper in the English language was originally the word ezer in the Hebrew language, and it's used 21 times in the Old Testament. Two times, it's used to describe Eve, Adam's helper. Three times, it's used to describe military power coming to help you. All the other times, the word is used to describe God, our helper. And the verse I'm speaking of is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says this, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. That word suitable literally means comparable to. Like he paraded all the animals before him and none of them were comparable to Adam. Like I'm all for like, you know, protecting the animals and save the whales and all that, but, but none of them have the significance of a soul. And so he says, none of these are comparable. I'm gonna make one that's comparable to Adam. In other words, God designed woman to complement man. And yet, it's very clear that there is a strong opinion uh, and a lot of diversity of opinions in the world today and in the church specifically that women should not help lead the church. We don't need your help, many would say. But I would argue that God's design has always been to use women of God. And again, if we had time, we'd just walk through story after story. I think about Miriam in the Old Testament, who along with her brothers, uh, Moses and Aaron, was a prophet that led the nation. I, I think about women like Deborah in Judges chapter four. In fact, I'll, I'll just put one verse on the screen. You can read this on your own time, but this, this will rattle your brain a little bit. It says in Judges four and four, now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. Now, all of chapter four and chapter five talk about her leadership, and there's even a song about Deborah recorded there. And, and this, this, it doesn't say like she was a strong-willed woman and her husband Lapidoth was the leader. No, 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 he's, that's, like, that's his only mention. He's not really part of the story. She's a wife, but she's clearly the leader of God's people, Israel. I think about women like Huldah, uh, the people of Israel had, had fallen away from God. They had neglected God's word so much that they literally lost their only copy of the Bible. Like they, they didn't even know where the word was. And then after you know, many assassinations, Josiah becomes the king at eight years old. And so he grows up under this wicked kingdom, but he has a heart for God. And then they find the word. And so as a young man, he reads the word, and the Bible says when they read the scriptures to him, he tore his garments. He repented. He said, we have not been living according to the word. Go and ask, what should we do? You know who the leaders went to to ask, what should we do? Huldah. They went to Huldah, and they said, tell us what to do. And so God used her to bring about a religious reform and spark a revival in the nation under her leadership. Go to the New Testament and you see Jesus' ministry. And let me just say, you would be hard-pressed. Anyone would be hard-pressed looking at the way Jesus treated women to justify any belief in female inferiority. It would just, it'd just be tough sledding, okay? I mean, you could try if you want, but it's a hard argument to make because time after time, in a very male-dominated culture, where male slaves and male children really had more rights and prerogatives than ladies. In that culture, Jesus continually elevated women. 
They served in his inner circle of ministry. They funded his ministry through their business. In Luke chapter 10, verse 38, a woman named Martha, who is seemingly unmarried, invites Jesus and his disciples into her home. They come and they, they take up residence in her home. And then even while they're there, he tells Martha, Mary's job is not in the kitchen. Mary can come and sit out here with the disciples and learn from me. And so on and on again, like the message in our, in our culture is one of, of patriarchy. And, and even if you say, well, I, I don't think that way, I have to challenge my own convictions. I probably do more than I realize because it's, it's the lens and the culture that I've grown up in. But when I look at the word of God, I, I look at Easter Sunday morning, the most significant day in human history. Jesus comes up out of the grave and of all people, the one he chose to appear to first was a woman to Mary. And read the story. Peter and John had already been there. They saw the tomb was empty. He could have showed up to those guys, but instead he lets them leave. And then he shows up to Mary. He, he reveals himself as the resurrection and the life to Mary in that place. And he says to her, I want you to go to my brothers. Tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. In other words, Jesus announces on resurrection morning, you have a new place. My father is your father. My God is your God. You are sons and you are daughters. And more than that, you're my brothers and my sisters. I think about uh, people like the woman at the well in John chapter four. Uh, this is the longest discourse we have from Jesus in the whole Bible. And it's a conversation he has with a woman about who he is. And she's the first person that he reveals himself to be the Messiah to. Like before he told the apostles, he told this Samaritan woman at a well, that he is the coming Messiah. And then she goes into her town and she tells everybody about it. And Jesus stays in that town for two more days to, to just bring clarity and to ratify her claims about who he really is. And, and so the questions out there, maybe it's a question you could care less about, but there's a deeper issue that I'm, I'm preaching towards. And so I wanna just entertain the question today, can a woman be in ministry? Can a woman be a pastor? I had that conversation uh, not too long ago with someone, uh, and they said, I just, I don't think I could attend your church because I don't believe women should be in ministry. And it's not the first time I've had that conversation, but it struck me when I had it this time because I was talking to a woman in ministry. So I was like, could you clarify that a little bit? I mean, you've got a very fruitful ministry. Well, I, I do, but... I don't believe a, a woman can be a pastor. Oh, okay, okay. Well, what about kids' pastors? Well, okay, well, I don't believe a woman can be a pastor over a man. Okay, so now we know the issue. That, that's what we're really getting to. And so let me just say this to kind of release the pressure in the air if you're feeling it today. If you don't think a woman uh, should be a pastor over a man, uh, good news. You, you came to a church that has a man as a pastor. So like, <laughs> if that's your personal prerogative, like, Nothing about that's changing anytime soon. So like relax, there's diversity in the body of Christ and you can go to church wherever you wanna to go to church. Uh, you happen to come to a church where there's a man that leads the congregation. Uh, so, and that's fine. But the reason I'm giving attention to this is because I don't want anyone to be raised up under this ministry believing less about their potential than God intended them to because of man-made limitations that we've put on them. Like, history is filled with, with illustrations of, of men and women, senior adults, 
children, wealthy, poor, first world people, third world people, first class, no class. Like there's, there's evidence of many different types of people that God has used and anointed for great works. Today, interesting fact, you might not know, we're an Assembly of God church. 25% of Assembly of God ministers today are credentialed women. Yeah, amen. And, and I believe I believe a lot more are coming, and I believe it's because of the hour that we're living in. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest field. Can I just tell you, my, my position is that we need all of God's laborers in the harvest field in this generation. And so I'm preaching about us being sons and daughters and walking in the fullness of the Spirit's power in this series. I'm preaching specifically about women finding their place uh, and their role in, in God's design in his kingdom. But, but more specifically, what it really comes down to is how do we interpret scripture? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And let me just say, the whole debate, all the debates, they come down to two verses. Two verses in the New Testament. So I'm just gonna give those to you. The two verses that, that cause all of the arguments and the, 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 the frustration about where we stand on this issue. If you have a strong stance on this, you're probably already there. But the rest of us are gonna go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and then we're gonna go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 14 is where we're going first. And as you go there, I wanna put another verse on the screen for you to consider, because this is our conviction. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful. It, so what, what that means is we don't, we don't go through the buffet line of God's word and pick the ones we like and skip over the ones we don't. It's all God-breathed. And because it's all the inspired, authoritative, inerrant word of God, then what we realize is when we have scruples about a contradiction in the text, it's a contradiction on our part. It's a contradiction in our understanding and interpretation. It's not a contradiction in the text because God's word is holy, it is right, it is absolute truth. Amen? All right, so any disagreement is our disagreement. It's not God's disagreement. The word of God stands alone. So to take a text out of context is a pretext. So we have to, when we come to scriptures that are hard, we have to kind of zoom out and go, well, let me look at it in the context of everything God's word has said and see where this fits in. And, and let me just also acknowledge before I read this verse that's gonna uh, look like a slam dunk against my sermon today. Uh, before I read that verse to you, uh, let me tell you that some scripture is just hard to understand. I never want to be one of those people that says, like, I've got it, you know, because I'm a pastor, I've got all the word, you know, figured out. Um, in fact, the Apostle Peter even wrote in his letter about the Apostle Paul's letters, and he said, they're really hard to understand. <laughs> I mean, so if I'm 2,000 years removed from the context of the conversation and the culture of the people, and I'm trying to parse out the text, how many of you know you're not the only one that struggles to interpret scripture? Here's what Peter said in 2 Peter 3.16, talking about Paul. He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them about these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Like, Peter's like, I, I struggle to even trek with Paul sometimes. But yet in that same verse, he warns against people 
that would twist the scripture uh, to make it say something that it's not supposed to say. So we have to hold the word cautiously and with humility. The, the statement that I used as a launch pad last week and this week, Galatians 3, where Paul says, in Christ, there's not Jew or Gentile. There's not slave or free. There's not male or female. We're all one in Christ. That verse that we see as a statement in Galatians 3 is actually illustrated and played out in the life of Paul in Romans chapter 16. If you read Romans 16, he honors all the people that serve with him in ministry or many of them. And what's cool is when you read the list, you realize some of these are Jews, some of these are Gentiles. Most of these are free people, but some of these are slaves. And a third of the people he lists as ministry partners in Romans 16 are women. Which just makes it that much harder to read this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. Well, never mind. That's clear, right? I mean, like, when you just read that by itself, you're like, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty straightforward, I guess. Case closed. And let me just say, there are volumes of books interpreting this verse in the context of this verse. Many arguments, some of those arguments would just say, this is a universal shut up. If you're a woman, just, just don't talk, don't serve, because look, I mean, that's what the Bible says. And we say, well, the Bible says. And we take a text out of context, and we make it a pretext for a patriarchal perspective. There, there's a lot of views. I just want to give you one. This one is maybe one of the most compelling to me. The, fir the first uh, argument is that maybe these aren't even Paul's words. Really? These aren't Paul's words. Why? Well, I'll give you the three reasons. Number one, because in this verse you're looking at, Paul says, as the law says. Now, he's not talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the, the Talmud. He's talking about the, the law of the Judaizers. When he says, as the law says. They had added so many laws to God's command. Uh, they'd put so many limitations on God's people. Uh, here, here's one of the current laws uh, at the time of Christ that was in uh, the, the rabbinical law. It said this. Let the words of the law be burned rather than committed to a woman. If a man teaches his daughter the law, it is as though he taught her lewdness. That was one of the laws of the day. So when you look at the ministry of Jesus, he absolutely defied these laws. Like Jesus made it a point to teach in the outer courts where the women could be a part of it instead of teaching in the inner courts. Uh, and then in Luke chapter 13, it's on the uh, Sabbath day, Jesus actually goes into the synagogue and he invites a woman into the men's only club. She's been crippled for 18 years. He brings her into the synagogue and he heals her of her disease in that moment. When you read the rest of Paul's letters over and over again, he was the messenger to the Gentiles and the Judaizers were trying to say, yes, you can be saved by grace uh, in Jesus, but you also need to be a little bit Jewish. So like, yes, you're saved because of faith, but we also want you to be circumcised. At one point in one of his letters, Paul said, you want to talk about circumcision? If you think people need to be circumcised to be saved, I wish you'd just go the whole way and castrate yourself. Like that's scripture. He said that. Look it up. Like, it just doesn't seem likely that, that Paul's defense for this statement would be as the law says. The second reason this might not even be Paul's words is because of the, two, the verse, two verses right before it, Paul says you can all prophesy. 
So they can't both be authoritative. Paul can't say you can all, you can all prophesy and then two verses later say, women, you can't say anything. The third reason this might not even be Paul is because of the presence of a Greek symbol in the text. Now, we're reading this in English, and despite what somebody might have told you, the Bible wasn't originally written in King James, okay? It was written in Greek, and there's a symbol in the text that Paul uses repeatedly in 1 Corinthians, and scholars tell us there's two meanings for this symbol. The first indicates that Paul is quoting somebody, most likely quoting the letter that they sent to him. See, we read the Bible and we forget sometimes this was an actual letter to real people and it was actually a correspondence. In fact, 1 Corinthians is not 1 Corinthians. It's the second letter. And 2 Corinthians is not 2 Corinthians. It's the fourth letter. But we don't have the other two in the Bible. We have these two and we have none of the letters they wrote to him in which he responded to. And so this symbol is really important because Paul is quoting something they've said and then he's responding to it. And, and you see that throughout his letters, especially in 1 Corinthians. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, Now for matters you wrote about, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. Now we read that, and we know that Paul is saying, this is what you wrote about, and then he quotes them. Now if you take away the quotation marks, it reads different. If you take away the quotation marks, he says, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationship with a woman. And we hate that verse. But like all the married people love 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Like if you're married and you don't know what I'm referring to, bless your marriage and go read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because after Paul says this, he says, that's what you wrote about. But let me tell you, men should not deprive their women. Wives should not deprive their husbands of sexual intimacy. It's a great chapter, okay? But if we don't have the quotation, it looks like he's saying the opposite. The second meaning of that Greek symbol uh, in this passage is it's interpreted as an expletive of disassociation. David Hamilton writes, the closest equivalent to this symbol in English would be nonsense or no way. So maybe, and I just present this to you, maybe a more accurate translation of this portion would be verse 34, quote, He's quoting the Judaizers, those that say, hey, the law says. He's quoting them saying, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is a disgrace for a woman to speak in the church, end quote. Verse 36, nonsense. Did the word of God originate with you or what? Are you the only one? It has reached. So it's possible that we've taken the very text that Paul used as a defense for women's rightful place in the body of Christ and the expression of the gifts of the Spirit, and we've turned it around to be an argument against women being used of the Lord in ministry. And here's the crazy thing. I'm almost out of time, and the verse in 1 Timothy is actually harder than the verse in 1 Corinthians. I'm just gonna tell you. Like, I'm gonna read it to you because we're already in the deep end. 1 Timothy chapter 2 Verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must 
be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. What? I got so many questions like about that. First of all, I think we all understand Jesus was pretty clear when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I didn't hear anything in the, the presentation of the gospel about childbirth. So like that's, that's the obvious question, but, but here's what I want you to know about this and all scripture. The best interpretation of scripture is scripture. Before you grab a commentary off the bookshelf, before you Google it, before you look it up on YouTube, the best interpretation of scripture is scripture. Context matters. So what's the context that Paul is writing to Timothy here? The biggest issue that 1 Timothy is addressing is Paul is talking about the infiltration of false teaching in the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a capital city. It was the home to the temple of Artemis, a goddess of fertility. And and so these people are getting saved out of an occult practice, and now they're being discipled in the way of Jesus. And and so Paul is writing to them because there's there's something happening, and the theological term for it is syncretism. We see it in our culture. They're taking a little, a little bit of the gospel of grace in Jesus, taking a little bit of Judaism out of the old covenant, and, and you know what? Let's take a little bit of the, the goddess Artemis that we're com- comfortable with in our society. Let's kind of amalgamate all that in together and just kind of make it work for everybody. And so Paul is, is refuting this false teaching that's coming into the church. He says at one point, such teaching comes through hypocritical liars in verse in chapter four. And then in chapter five, he spends much time talking specifically about women in the church in Ephesus. He says, they've become idlers. They've also become busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to say. So we don't know all the details of what was going on in that church, but Timothy, this young pastor, was having some issues with some women in the church. That much is very clear. And so in Verse 12, we read it earlier. He says, I don't permit women to teach or to assume authority over man. She must be quiet. Again, this is, uh, I'm reading out of the NIV. This is one translation of a Greek text. What Paul is obviously saying is these women are not to be teaching. And he said, don't let them assume authority over a man. And what's interesting about that statement is uh, the word authority is all through the Bible. I, I started this message with a place where Jesus said, All power and authority has been given to me. But that word for authority is translated from a word, exousia. Exousia is rightful authority. It's positive. It's it's a, a clear word of right authority. The word in this passage is authentine, and it's the only place in the New Testament that word shows up. And it's a word that means to dominate to usurp. It means to take control. In other words, it has a forceful negative connotation. So if if that's the church you're in and that's the problem you're dealing with, rather than saying women can't be in charge of anything or lead anywhere, what Paul is actually saying is don't let these women dominate and usurp your authority. Don't let them take over here. 
He's writing to this young pastor, the same one in this letter, by the way, who he said, hey, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youthfulness, but be an example to the believers. The same one that he wrote to and said, hey, Timothy, God hasn't given you a spirit of timidity. He's given you a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. So he's telling him in this moment, don't let these women dominate and take over and teach this stuff. They have no place teaching and they're not to assume authority. In 2 Timothy, he actually writes to praise Lois and Eunice for teaching Timothy, raising him up in the faith. So when you start looking at the context of this, you realize there's some Judaizers that they worship the goddess of Artemis. And when you study culture that we don't have in the scripture, what you, what you learn is something about the practice of the worship of the goddess Artemis was that they believed and these Judaizers were teaching that, that Eve was actually created before Adam and that she had freed the world by listening to the serpent. They believed that Eve was superior to Adam. So in verse 13 and 14, Paul is saying, these women can't teach and women are not superior to men. That's not the same thing as saying men are superior to women. It could be a defense to an argument you haven't heard. Verse 15, now this is the real fun one. He says, but women will be saved through childbearing. Now, immediately, if you've been reading the, you know, you've been saved for a minute and a half, you know, like, that doesn't sound right. What is that supposed to be about? So again, we, we look at the text in the context. You look deeper and, and you, you learn that the women in Ephesus prayed to Artemis, this goddess of fertility. And, and they prayed that they would be saved through being able to give birth. Through childbirth, they would be saved. In fact, one of the alternate names for Artemis is Sotira, which is a Greek word derived from Sotiras, which means salvation. So they're praying for salvation to salvation. And many scholars look at this and they say, Paul's exhorting the women to put your faith in Christ. At the moment that you're giving birth, at the moment you're experiencing like the greatest miracle of life, don't let that be a moment that you're praying for salvation to the goddess Artemis. Put your faith in Jesus Christ while you're giving birth and continue in faith and love and holiness and propriety. Again, you can disagree with me on the translation of these verses, but what I want you to see is, is that throughout the whole of Scripture, God has communicated over and over again that he has a plan and a purpose for his people, that he's no respecter of persons, that, that whosoever will may come, that the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh, that your sons and daughters should prophesy, that old men should dream dreams. Young men should have visions over and over again. And so if you're gonna take those two verses, and that's really the issue, it's just those two verses. If you take those verses, you take a hard stance that women don't have a place of ministry in the church, then, then I would expect also that, that, yeah, women should sit down, be quiet. If you have any questions, ask your husband when you get home. Don't ask me. But I'd also expect you to keep your head covered. Don't wear any jewelry. Don't braid your hair. 
But when I read these verses in, in context and I understand the culture, I know that God has put his unique fingerprint on us. He made mankind in his image, man, male and female. He made them in his image to be suitable helpers to one another. I know God has a place, purpose, and promises in his word for his sons and daughters. Both men and women, young and old, people of God activated in the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work and the will of God in this generation. And here's my heart as your pastor. I just, I don't want anyone to miss out on their God-given kingdom potential because we've embraced or accepted man-given cultural glass ceilings. Our heart is to say, Lord, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. And so we want the church to not look like America or even Israel. We want the church to look like heaven. Spirit-empowered, spirit-gifted, spirit-filled, men and women of God taking the gospel to the nations. So here's the question, and we'll end with this. This is for you to answer personally in your own heart. Is there any limitation beyond sin that you've placed on God? Is there any limitation beyond sin that you've placed on God, on what he can do in your life or in anyone else's life? And the reason I qualify that beyond sin is because we didn't even preach about sin today. Uh, just, just know, if, if you're not familiar with the Bible, there's one thing that separates you from God's plan and purpose for your life. It's sin. And I almost feel like, sadly, because of where our American culture has gone, I have to qualify everything I said about God allowing women in ministry with a disclaimer about sin because some of us have fallen so far from the truth that we have entire denominations that are ordaining uh, homosexuals into the ministry. And let me be clear, the Bible calls sin, sin. We're not talking about anybody and everybody that believes anything can be anything. We're talking about us because of our own perspective or a cultural context, limiting what God might want to do in and through your life or the next generation of this church. So I wanna ask it again, is there any limitation beyond sin that you're putting in your life on what God can do? There's, there's people here today, I believe, like God, God wants to give you gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14 says this, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. But some of you feel like it would be wrong for you to pursue the gifts of the Spirit. Like you're not qualified to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. Maybe, you're, maybe your, your past is, is too dark or maybe you're too old or you're too young or you're too female. I don't know. But, but it's so easy for us to disqualify ourselves when the Bible says pursue the gifts of the Spirit. So we're going to end the service. I just want to, I want to pray for you. And you can just take a moment with the Lord right now to ponder this question and ask him. I would challenge you to ask him, God, am I putting limitations on my God-given capacity? Am I putting limitations on somebody else's God-given capacity? 
God, I pray today for all of us as a church that, that we would create an atmosphere of faith, that it's not just some cliche statement that we make to, to teenagers when they're launching into adulthood and say, hey, the sky's the limit. You know, you can, you can, you can be anything you want to be. Lord, help us to be a people that, that have a genuine conviction that with God, all things are possible. So long as it's not contrary to your will and your word, so long as it's not sinful, God, we, we pray right now that, that all sin be removed from our hearts, from our, our minds, and that God, with a, a pure heart, with clean hands, we could come before you and say, God, I don't want to put any limitations on what you want to do. Pour out your spirit. God, send us the latter rain. Send us an outpouring that you said would come. When you spoke that the gospel would go to the nations, Lord, pour your spirit out on us. Lord, we want to live in a way that is yielded and open and receptive to you. And God, I just, I just feel led to pray right now for unity in the, the global church, the capital C church. Lord, th those branches of the church that that I'm personally not affiliated with, Lord. Jesus, you said that our unity, our unity as the body of Christ would communicate to the world that the Father sent the Son. So Lord, help us to, to walk in humility. Help us to be gracious about what Peter called the scriptures that are hard to understand. God, help us to be a people that lift people, lift them up to their God-given potential. In Jesus' name, and for his glory, and for the expansion of his kingdom, amen. Amen. If you love the Lord and his word, let's just give him praise together. Amen. Amen.